Hello and welcome to the Motion E podcast. I'm S. Garlic, and for this edition, I had a very clear um, instruction to my army of booking agents uh, for this podcast. I said, just drop everything and get me Fernando. And they did. They got me Fernando Moutinho. Hello, Fernando. Um, you are, um, of course, you've been on the podcast before. You are a um, uh, gaming expert in my words, not yours. Uh, and uh, you currently work as a community uh, lead for Codemasters. Um, Fernando, it's great to have you back. It's an absolute pleasure to be here again. Well, um, I, I hope it will be a pleasure by the end of the podcast as well, because I asked you to come with a list of um, five racing games that maybe were not the biggest breakthrough games in terms of sales, but maybe broke new ground or were especially meaningful. And I just thought we could have a nice, uh, gentle chat about games as there's no Formula E action from last weekend to comment on. Um, you up for that, Fernando? Absolutely. I, I love racing games. I've, it's my main genre. I love my whole life. So this is my favorite topic to talk about. Well, and uh, I'm I'm um, keenly aware that I am stepping onto the uh, well manicured territory of uh, the Time Extend podcast as well by doing this. <laughs> I'm sure they're all mine. Well, um, Time Extend, if you're listening, I'd I'd love to come on your show and do a crossover at some point. Um, anyway, uh, so um, the first game that uh, you wanted to talk about, Fernando, uh, was Enthusia Professional Racing. Um, which is the only game on the list that I had never heard of or at least couldn't remember hearing of until today. So, in fact, the first time I read it, I thought it said Euthanasia Professional Racing, which would have been a different game altogether. But uh, um, maybe let's begin by... um, Tell us uh, when when Enthusia Professional Racing came out and um, what what was the kind of state of gaming at that point? Well, first off, you you're not wrong with the, the title. A lot of people that's the first thing they see, <laughs> because in, in typical Japanese fashion, they find some strong English word and they just go with that. <laughs> so yeah, uh, enthusiast is well jokes aside because uh, the joke around my gang is that that's the game I'm known for because I keep making on about it, and there's a reason for it, is because. I say, jokingly, Enthusia is the best Gran Turismo. And there's a reason for that. Is that because this game came out, I think, just before or just after Gran Turismo 4. And we all know Gran Turismo 4. We all know the game. It's a, it's a massive, colossal game. It, it shift massive units. There's no point in me talking about it because everything they used to say about Gran Turismo 4 has been said already. But Enthusia came out just on the back end of it uh, as an attempt by Konami to dethrone Gran Turismo. It was their, their attempt to, to get back at him because around this time, uh, early 2000s, every company was trying to do their own take of Gran Turismo formula. Uh, even Capcom did it with Automobilista. Uh, Namco did a like a spin-off to Reed Racer with R Racing and we all know eventually Forza came out and tried to do the same thing. So everyone was trying to do something their own way. Uh, and I think this is the one that got closest, uh, besides Forza, of course, because that one went on. Uh, Enthusia is essentially 
Gran Turismo with a different flavor, a, di a different taste, a different take on it. Uh, besides being a really accurate simulation of, of driving physics, um, something that they actually proud to say. There's a, a technical opening video on the game that shows them driving a, a Mazda MX-5 and comparing directly to footage for, from the game and try to show you how how the physics emulate and how accurate it is compared to getting to real footage. And they're, they're really proud of the work they did. And so that that's the lead on it. It is a real simulator, even though what I, they can't say that because that's what Andreessen was saying. Uh, but once you, you, you get into the game, the first thing that hits you is the intro clip, right? I got to talk about this because it's the weirdest aspect of the game. Uh, there's a, an intro clip with real footage of some young girl playing with her little Beanie Cooper on, on a table side with her dad and then flashbacks to her in the future being a, a racing photographer. And there's some cutscenes mixing between her flashbacking memories to her dad and to her inner present. And then there's a big crash on, on, on the circuit, but she's all right. And the clip ends there. <laughs> it's very disjointed, makes absolutely no sense. And my theory for that is that one, they originally wanted to include a story in the game, but couldn't. Or two, they just outsourced the the intro making some other company. We didn't get the brief correctly. Right. But... This this leads this leads into something I've been saying, which is that uh, well, um, your your employer, Codemasters Stroke EA Games, should be uh, should be trying to make a Formula One version of Driver San Francisco, where actually you play a playable character who is in a coma and keeps leaping in and out of the heads of various F one drivers. I think that would be fun. Well, first off, you have to convince uh, Farm to allow you to do that. Hmm. <laughs> There is a, a lot of things that uh, the F1 team wants to do and any, any other devs wants to do, but everything has to, to be regulated and stick true to the licensing and make sure it doesn't go too wacky, uh, which is why oftentimes you see games including fictional teams or fictional cars because they, they don't need approval for anything. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, and um, uh, obviously we'll 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 talk about the F one game a bit more later on. But I'm I'm fascinated to know about some other aspects of it. Um, but coming back to Enthusia, um, it it does look from the screenshots that I've seen and from the clips that I've seen to be a thoroughly realistic racing game, especially on the uh, I think it was PS three hardware of that time. Is it PS three? No, PS two. PS, wow. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the graphics are incredible for PS2. It, it must have been really flogging that processor at the time. I wouldn't know exactly because in terms of developing games and and how to make a game and the procedure to make a game, I, I'm more or less versed about it. But actually, the insights of how to make stuff work, it still baffles me till today. Uh now that I have a, a much better understanding and appreciation for how games work, sometimes I see something happening in a game, any game, and I think to myself, how did they make that happen? You know, because it's just mind-boggling. Uh, the, the code and twisting the engine to do stuff, is it's it's incredible. But but this is the first time that this team was put together, at Konami, to do a racing game. And for their first attempt at it, I think they did a magnificent job. It's... If it wasn't for Gran Turismo 4 coming out so close to it, I think it would gather a much more attention. And and I think it eventually did. Uh, recently, with thanks to emulation 
efforts and whatnot, it gained sort of a popularity where people were looking to, oh, let me, let me try a game that I'd never played before. And they come across Enthusian and they're, um, most people I talk to, they, they're actually quite fascinated and something is better than Gran Turismo. But I think that's just a matter of personal opinion, really. Uh, I personally, what what attracted me to Enthusia is that, it's again, it is a Gran Turismo, but with a different flavor, different taste. It's much more classy. Uh, the soundtrack, uh, the soundtrack is absolutely beautiful. Every single circuit has its own dedicated soundtrack, and it, it matches the vibes to it. So if you go to America and pick an American track, there's guitar riffs, uh, there's a uh, you know, the, the Americano kind of taste. Hmm. And if you go somewhere in Europe, like a, a forest track, is much more melody, melody to it. And it there's actually a, a, a racetrack called Desert... No, uh, Winter Thunder, I think, is a, is a rally track. Hmm. And it's all snowy, whatever. And there's like this mystical music playing in the background. It, it, it's, it's phenomenal. It's absolutely great. Um, and... What's the reason, in your opinion, why, in the words of Alan Partridge, it didn't get a second series? Well, I still strongly believe the cause was Grand Turismo 4. It got slated. I mean, this was Konami's first proper attempt at a a sim racing game, and the sales didn't reflect the the time and money that they poured into it. So obviously, they couldn't just justify a sequel. And this was at the back end of the PS2 generation. So if they were to develop a sequel, it would have to be on new hardware and a new generation of consoles. So I believe that the cost just didn't justify the, the means to, to get another one going. Uh, I think everybody by then accepted, everybody except Microsoft, we turned 10 and Forza accepted that Gran Turismo is here to stay. That's it. They're the kings of this. We can't get closer to it. But Forza kept pushing and it succeeded in their own ways. But Everybody else got, got left in the dust. They just couldn't keep up. Yeah, and actually, uh, Racevic, the YouTuber who I watch an awful lot, uh, um, made a video, I think, last week called um, I Love Racing Games, Here's Why They Suck, I think it's called. Uh, and and um, he talks about how uh, innovation in racing games has pretty much stopped because there's so much uh, monopolism with, with, within the market. So um, nobody bothers to make a new sort of, um, you know, um, buy, um, buy, a, buy a chain of cars for your garage and then go, then go on tracks game um, because Forza and Gran Turismo effectively have that market locked down and it would just cost way too much to develop something better. Uh, and actually... Given how, given just how accurate Forza and Gran Turismo are, I mean, Forza, um, you know, for I think um, Horizon Four uh, mapped the UK or parts of the UK almost perfectly. Um, there's actually a very limited gain to be made in in trying to build the same thing slightly better, isn't there? That's right. Yeah. So, what every game dev does from one game to another is always improve on the previous game, while throwing in new things. But as Revik probably said on his video, which is a good video, I recommend everybody who likes racing games to watch. Uh, as things evolve and progress, things get more expensive to make and to do and to to actually put faith on a new project, a new idea. And this goes back to goes back to enthusiasm as well, because during this era of the PS2 and original Xbox, 
era, there was a lot of experimentation happening. There was a lot of, of fresh new titles and uh, sub-genres be, being born for the first time. And there was a lot of experimentation, a lot of faith put into, into new, new ideas, and publishers just went with it because they just believe on the idea. And there were ways of them making back the money. Nowadays, if you take a risk, if you take a chance, it's going to cost you a lot. And if you don't make it out, it could mean the end of, of the company and the whole team gets jobless, really. So the risks are really, really high. Uh, there's, of course, a lot of different reasons why this happens. And I think that video covers it in detail and gives different takes of it. But ultimately, yeah, things are quite risky to make. And devs and publishers alike would rather do something more safe so that they actually can get some money out of it, of course, because that's the ultimate reason why this is made, you know, is to, to make money and keep the business going. And it, it seems like um, any misstep that they could make, Konami has made um, uh, in, in terms of its uh, most successful franchises. I mean, I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking now about how. Just before it was announced that uh, um, EA was going to um, um, lose the FIFA license, uh, but was going to continue making football games under the name EA Sports FC, uh, Konami decided to pivot towards um, um, on online freemium model with eFootball, which turned into a bit of a disaster, at least at launch time, a buggy disaster. Um, although I, I gather it's improved with evolutions. Similarly, um, Metal Gear Solid, I think, was was another huge franchise uh, for Konami. Am I correct? There, it was Konami franchise. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and and then when Hideo Kojima left to make Death Stranding, um, and apparently fell out with a lot of his uh, um, uh, colleagues at the studio. Um, they decided to continue making Metal Gear, and they made Metal Gear Survive, that killed the franchise. So, um, is is there just a chance that Konami isn't a great steward of great games? Well, there's a lot of uh, intricate details that we publicly will never know. Uh, but all it takes is a quick dive into the internet and you start going down the right, right rabbit hole of what's happening out there. Um, ultimately, I, I think, yeah, making the right decisions is what pushes the company forward. And when you make a series of bad decisions, then things start getting progressively worse and you, you don't make a profit and things just start piling up. Hmm. All right. So, Enthusia Professional Racing is your first pick. Um, Burnout Two. Uh, Bur the Burnout franchise is uh, something that I am aware of, and I'm aware of it because a Ford executive was once quoted as saying, "You will never see a Ford in a Burnout game." Now, hmm. um, I I think that that was taken humorously, but he meant it seriously. Um, Talk us through the Burnout franchise and uh, why, in your opinion, it rose above the likes of, you know, Need for Speed and those kinds of things. Well, before I dive into Burnout, just going a quick note on Enthusia for those who actually want to try it out. Uh, when I say it's like Gran Turismo, I mean it in every way. Like, it still has rally cars, it still has racing cars and road cars. And the car list, I believe, is better than Gran Turismo's because it's much more curated. You find some odd cars that you never find in any games. Uh, in fact, I can't think of one right now because there's so many of them, but there are certain cars in that game that never showed up in a game before or afterwards. And it, it's just a really, really nice game for, for car people that I think everyone should try. Okay. Uh, now, now, Burnout. Now, this is a, 
a very unique, specific choice for me. Why did I pick Burnout 2? Uh, I already can hear your listeners yelling at me because why did I pick Burnout 3 or Burnout Revenge? Because <laughs> those are, are better games. And I, and I agree, they are better games. But Burnout 2 is at a, a point where Criterion was just about to crack the, their formula at Burnout. And so if you go back to the first Burnout game, you'll see it's very bare bones, but but the idea is there. that What they're trying to accomplish, you can almost see it, but they didn't, they didn't quite accomplish that. Uh, by the sequel, Burnout 2, they, they, they figured out. They, they know exactly what they want to do, and this was the best they could put together their resources to present to us, the players, what their vision was like. So come Burnout 3 and Revenge and so forth, when EA bought them, that's where you can see there being a well-established name and franchise and what Burnout is. And if you revisit Burnout 2, you, you'll see that, that that transition point between an idea and them actually nailing down the formula for Burnout. Uh, Burnout 2 doesn't have the, the famous takedowns yet. They haven't implemented that. But you, you can sense that there's an evolution happening and, and a massive one uh, at that. And I think... Going back to revisit Burnout 2 gives you a better appreciation for the later titles. Okay, so tell us a bit about the uh, the gaming mechanic and um, how how it actually works for for those of us who aren't familiar with the series. Because um, I I know Need for Speed. I like Need for Speed. I've never played Burnout. So how does it differ? So Need for Speed is more about car culture. Um, Depending on which game you play, some are about telling a story or experiencing uh, a certain subgenre of car culture. Um, Need for Speed has been around for so long now, like nearly 30 years or more, and there's so many games. They're covering so many different sub subgenres and subcultures. Uh, but Need for Speed is about cars primarily. Burnout is about racing. It's about classic arcade style racing where there's things flashing in front of you there's action there, there's numbers popping up when you, you you score something there's little sound effects that just activate the neurons in your brain it makes you feel all happy and you just want to keep pushing forward uh like i said then introduce the takedown mechanic in burnout 3 where you could actually destroy you your opponents and throw them against traffic <laughs> or against the oncoming bus and on a pillar or a train or anything like that. And it just keeps progressively getting more and more exciting as, as you play. And the idea is to put the action in front of the player and reward you with the things you do as you play. And that's why it differs from Need for Speed and, and, and Burnout. Because again, Burnout is about the, the action in front of you, the, the moment-to-moment racing, while Need for Speed is more about the spectacle of the car and, and the subculture surrounding cars. And uh, what 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 were the first cars that you were given um, as you as you started? Because uh, you, usually you're given a really easy car for the tutorial, aren't you? So, uh, what what right. kind of a car were you given to start with in Burnout Two? So Burnout, for those who don't don't know, don't have licensed cars. So you're not going to see a Ferrari or a Nissan or anything like that in there. But you will see some inspirations from those. Uh, just not as obvious as GTA makes them. For instance, <laughs> they're a bit different. Is their own take. Uh, so when you start Burnout 2, like you said, there's like a, a little license thing, but this is not like Gran Turismo license. They're not going to tell you how to 
the star and stop a car or the apex of a corner. You can't forget about that. You can't forget about apexes or racing lines. There's no such thing here. It's all about pump up action. Um, the tutorial actually explains you how to maneuver through traffic because if you go, if you drive on an oncoming lane, that refills your boost, your boost bar. And once it's full, you let go and your car goes at hyperspeed. Now, here's the, the, the arcade bit of the game. The trick is to string along various things like uh, near-miss traffic, uh, drift, or going on coming lane. And all these little points keep adding up to your boost bar. And once it's full, you deploy it. But once it starts deploying, you cannot like, let go of it. You got to keep it hold it. That's what makes your car go at top speed. And again, the trick is to keep doing these things, stringing along, so that it keeps refilling your boost bar over and over again. And really top players can go around the whole track without ever getting off boost. Okay. Um, so th there, there is a, there is a strong element of skill in there, um, and um, and but but actually, it's a different kind of skill to maybe those other street racing games. That's right. Yeah, because the idea here is to understand what the game asks of you and wants you to do, and once you do, you gotta master it. You gotta be skillful about it. You gotta avoid traffic, know the track, and the top players, like I said, will go around the track without ever letting off boost but when you do actually eventually screw up and you will screw up because it's a learning curve you will crash eventually and this is the most cool thing about burnout the, the, the spectacle of crashing your car because they're not licensed cars they can do whatever they want with it there's no restrictions so you see your car getting all mangled up body panels flying over the place sparks and this got so popular and, and so good at it. They actually, the game actually has a dedicated crash mode where you have to fling your car into an intersection or a really busy traffic area and try to cause as much damage as possible. <laughs> it, it sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm going to have to take a look. Um, and uh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. So the second game you mentioned was Burnout 2. Now, mm -hmm. on to um, a third game, which... Um, even though again I've never played it, um, the the um, the person behind the license um, has a great place in my heart, and it was actually just after he had um, been, some would say unfairly nudged out of the World Rally Championship. It is of course Colin McRae Rally two thousand and five. Um, now we will be talking about another rally game uh, by a very successful Subaru driver later on, but uh, uh, Colin McRae Rally two thousand and five is your choice of game. The, um, the Colin McRae series seems for a while to be uh, to be endless, even after his death in two thousand and seven. But why have you chosen two thousand and five as the as the meaningful game um, in your list? So, like I said, Colin McRae holds a special place in my heart as well. Um, I grew up watching rally. Uh, I prefer rally over any other discipline of, of, of motorsport. Um, I still enjoy F1 or endurance racing and whatnot, but rallying is is where my roots are. You know, I grew up watching the, those cars going sideways through all kind of drains. So yeah, I I, I generally love Colin McRae. And uh, way back in 2002, uh, I was just a 12 year old kid, and I bought my very first game. With my own money, of course. I had games before by my parents, but this was the one I first bought by myself. My, it was my choice, my money, and I bought the game. The game that I bought was Colin McRae Rally 3. 
so it's not the one I'm talking about yet, but three was the one I bought was the one I spent the most time playing and I was just mesmerized at what Codemasters pulled with this game. And that was also when my love for Codemasters began. And and so after that game they launched one the next year in two thousand four and then made two thousand five. And why I picked two thousand five is because this is like the culmination of all their previous games. Uh, so when they jumped to the next generation of consoles in Xbox and PS2, they, they started doing things a bit differently. Uh, Comic Rally Rally 3 is a bit bare bones uh, in the fact that when you go into a championship, you only drive as Comic Rally in his Ford Focus. And although the game has uh, a selection of cars, you can't even use them in time trial. Uh, by 04, they introduce a more more cohesive career mode and different events you can do. And 2005 builds on top of that. So once you start Comic Rally Rally 2005, you have all these different championships, all these different careers that use the, the car selection to their fullest. And you, you can start driving four-wheel drive cars, uh, straight to WRC category cars, even off of them off-roaders and sort of classics, Group B, Group A. And there's all these cars that are actually used to their full potential. So there's actually a, a cohesive career mode and you go through it and you, you get so much content in a single game that you 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 don't you have so much to do really but so if you want to experience a comic Ray rally game this would be the one to to play although the previous ones are good obviously this is the one that has the most content and is the combination of all the previous games okay and um for for a long time in America, people thought that Colin McRae was uh, just a playable character in a game. They they didn't realise that he was a rally driver. Of course, um, That's right, yeah. n- now now that uh, now that uh, FIA sanctioned motorsport is uh, gets so much more exposure online and um, or, or also on TV um, around the world. I can imagine that that wouldn't be the case if he were an active driver now. But is there a strong argument? Um, to be made that um, the Colin McRae series, along with maybe Richard Burns' rally, which I'd love to talk about in a second, um, really helps to hold other games to account in the sense that I I love playing a game uh, that's out now called um, Art of Rally, which you've probably seen as well. Um, have you seen Art of Rally? Yeah, I'm very familiar with that. I played it myself. Uh- Okay, um, and you know that is not a simulator. It's it's an arcade game where where you uh, race you you race top down through uh, fictional terrain, and uh, you you do so in unlicensed cars, very much similar to Burnout in that sense. But um, it, it's kind of a very it, it's a beautiful sort of stylized um, um, kind of um, um, fa- fantastical map that you race through, and um, but the handling of the cars. Actually, even when you're playing with a keyboard like I do, feels like something that might be vaguely realistic. And I, I'm wondering how much the McRae games and maybe Richard Burns as well pushed other makers of rally games to really, you know, try harder. Well, I think that co- those three games can be split into their own subcategories. Uh, for instance, Art of Rally is. It's not a, about being a realistic sim. sim. Uh, it, it never tries to do that, so it shouldn't be considered that. But it emulates the sensation of rallying. You know, it's things you, you you do while driving a rally car. And Art of Rally is all about the atmosphere, the, the vibe, and just being locked down in the zone of throwing a car through a stage. Um, 
the Colin McRae games was following the philosophy of Codemasters of emulating a sport. Um, this is before the word simulator became much more commonly used. So as far as people were concerned back then, this was as real as it got, you know. Uh, they weren't trying to replicate one-to-one what a rally car does on a stage, but more so to the sense of the sport, you know. You you're, you have to set up your car, you, you have to listen to your pace notes carefully, which, by the way, prior to Colin McRae, rally games before it didn't really have a proper pace notes. It was the, the stuff that you, you hear in Sega Rally, you know, easy left, easy right, mm. over jump, etc. But when Colin McRae came into play, they got actually Nick Grist himself to write the pace notes for the game and voice them himself. So what you're hearing is accurate pace notes from him reading them to you. So again, it's all about the experience of emulating the sport and not necessarily the driving of the game. And of course, they always try to, to balance it up a medium of making the game accessible and still enjoyable for those who are want, want more out of it. So I think it strikes a good balance of that. Um, what Richard Burns Rally did, and was quite groundbreaking at the time, was aiming to be a simulator. So they weren't trying to to do what Colin McRae did or previous games did. They didn't weren't just be a rally game. It, it was trying to be an accurate simulator, uh, just like iRacing or or other top level games. And I think they did succeed at that, given the limitations back then of the time. Uh, a fairly small dev studio which name I cannot remember right now, but they had the imp- direct input of of a rally driver and they, they, they went with that, which Colin Crail also did, you know, calling himself would come to Saturn Codemasters and provide input and was really uh, engrossed in developing the game as well. But they were, the game was going for a slightly different experience. Um, so to answer the original question, no, I don't think they're trying to hold other devs accountable. Um, I think that the genre has shifted so much over the years, that around that time, that's when simulators were starting to be the norm, starting to be the, the next thing. Because again, this all comes from Gran Turismo being successful. He sent a benchmark, and every single studio out there wanted a piece of that pie, you know. And so, over the last two decades or so, I think simulators were became the norm, became the, the standard that people wanted to thrive towards the two. Uh, which then again led to the first Comic Ray Dirt and the Dirt series as well, and now it's called Dirt Rally. They dropped the Comic Ray name. And the first Dirt Rally was trying to be just that, uh, an accurate simulator of rally games. And I think they achieved that. They made a tremendous effort with that game. Uh, and that all comes from the evolution from our past games and how the, the genre changed, how, how we went from a simple fun arcade experience something much more serious and gritty and being an accurate simulation of driving um i I remember when the most recent dirt rally game came out uh a lot of the reviewers compared it to the uh uh contemporary uh wrc official game and uh they they um or uh, wrc official simulator and 
Um, they they said that although the WRC official um, uh, franchise was was meant to be sort of photorealistic and uh, and um, exact handling, um, it was also a lot harder to actually get into and to enjoy. Um, do you do you share their feeling from that time? Um, how would you compare the WRC official franchise to the Dirt franchise? Well, the WRC games have been through three developers so far. Uh, since they began in 2001 and they all tried to do different things first with evolution studios they were trying to make an accessible experience and they achieve milestone took over from that for the next console generation and they weren't as good as making accessible Um, there's this misconception uh, among racing game communities that hard means better and that's not that's not true because a race car is not hard to drive. You you hear this all the time from real race drivers, where especially for endurance racers, where they jump in a car and it's easy to drive, and that's the goal of the mechanics is to make the car as easy as possible to drive. So when you jump in a game and you find it hard, it doesn't mean it's accurate. In fact, it's, it's the opposite. It just makes the experience much more inaccessible and, and hard to enjoy. So after Milestone, uh, KT Racing took over the license, and their goal was to make uh, a rally simulator. And again, they had limited resources, but with each new iteration, they got closer and closer to the experience and uh, making a good balance of making them still accessible, but still somewhat enjoyable to those who wanted more. Um, I don't think they they would ever sort of dethrone Dirt Rally because, again, different development cycles, different expectations. But they got pretty darn close to it uh, in a sense that given their limitations and they have to work around a license, what they set out to make, I think they've accomplished it. And and yet, it's a different experience when you when you work with, um, with licensing. Um, and this can go back to what you said earlier about working with F1. Uh, because when you work on a license and you're making a license game, uh, being WRC, F1, NASCAR, Indy, whatever it is, you you have to abide by certain guidelines. Uh, you, your your goal is to emulate the sport first and foremost and make it much more accessible. So you cannot market this game exclusively to the hardcore players. No, this is this is a worldwide accessible sport. People from all ages and experiences and all walks of life should have the opportunity to experience this. So. If you start the game and the first thing it tells you is to adjust your settings, your suspension rates, your pressure tire, that's going to turn people off. I don't want to do mm-hmm. that. That's going to, I just want to play the game, you know? And so they, they try to streamline these things, but while still giving the option for those who want more. And so, an example of WRC, once they got the WRC license, the license gives them not just the, the opportunity to use the name, of course, but it gives them the rights to use the cars, the teams, the drivers and all the relatable sponsors that are tied to, to the event. And if they want to deviate a bit from that, then it gets complicated because they have to negotiate with the license holders if they can or cannot do that. Uh, if they want to bring new cars into the game, then they'll have to seek out an external license for that specific car because the sport license doesn't cover it. And so it gets a bit complicated, uh, which is why I think is a great feat. Like, for example, how how they include classic cars from previous generations uh, of the WRC, and they're not even relevant to the 
sport right now, but there's still great cars, people that, that think about and they associate with the sport. So, of course, when, when it, this is when it comes to game design of uh, of wanting to include more content, but how do we include that content? You know, we could put all the rallies in the calendar, all the drivers, and let it go, and that that that's the bare bones. That's the minimum expectation of a licensed game. But once you start throwing all these extra cars, then you gotta find a way to use them. You gotta give a, a way that the player can actually use this content, and so they have to develop different modes and different ways of doing it. And they actually achieved that with one of the most recent games. I think it was the Wrestling Nine or Ten, where they include the anniversary mode, where it lets you go through some historic rallies and drive these old cars that don't necessarily are in the calendar right now, but you can still, you know, enjoy them. But but yeah, ultimately, once you you work in a licensed game, you are tied to that license, and you have to abide certain guidelines. So you you have to make sure that first and foremost, your game is an accurate representation of the sport. Hmm. Um, and one one thing which uh, all of the rally sims and indeed the arcade rally games have um, always um, made me astonished about is just just how much they encapsulate and really show d- quite how difficult it must have been to have driven a Group B car. I mean, um, hmm. as Jimmy as Jimmy Broadbent has said, uh, the the current. Um, um, uh, R- rally one cars are actually are actually faster per capita than Group B cars, but um, I mean th- those Group Group B cars they they were they were massive. They had some of them, you know, Formula One detuned engines in them. It, it must have been like driving a Formula One car down down a narrow street. And um, if if I if I can't do it in a game, I I can't imagine how difficult it must have been even for professionals at, in the WRC. That's right. Yeah, everybody arcs back the Group B era uh, because it was just such a spectacle of raw power and and talent at that display. But all that power and, and talent also ultimately led to more increasing dangers. And we're talking about the '80s. People didn't, didn't care about safety back then as much as today. Uh, so yet. Those cars are incredible. They are a marvel to behold, but they are ultimately not as safe as we do today. Um, on that note, my personal favorite category of rallying era is the 90s, mm-hmm. early 2000s, when the Group A was introduced. That's where I really caught on to it, and I have much more fond memories for the era. And in a way, I think it's more interesting than Group B, personally, because there was more restrictions, and technology was advancing so fast that the cars were becoming less analog and more digital sort of way. Uh, they were introducing computers into the cars to calculate levels of traction and, and stuff like that. It was just, it was an incredible era to, to see so much development in such a short time. And it produced some of my favorite cars. And in fact, my dream car is the Mitsubishi Lancer Evolution. I love the Evo. It's my ultimate dream car. You know, people people want the Ferrari or Lamborghini. You know, I, I want an Evo. <laughs> it, it it's it still still kind of alarms me when I look back through some of the uh, um, um, seasons at that time, and I I think j- just how much um, just how much more drivers uh, switched between between different cars. I mean, um, the the these days, uh, if you think of let's say Sebastian Ogier, uh, obviously latterly uh, to- Toyota, but then. Um, 
for for a big chunk of his career, you'd think of him in as in a Citroen, maybe a, maybe a Volkswagen. But um, um, you, you know, he he was a franchise driver wherever he went. He he was the person that that they would uh, that they would uh, sort of uh, build everything around. But back then, like you'd have. Yuha Kankanen, who was known for so long as a Toyota driver. Same thing with Carlos Sainz Sr. And then they turn up in Alancia and win the title one season. And um, it, it, it just seems strange looking back and seeing Kankanen in Alancia. It, it would be like, I don't know, uh, um, see, seeing Sebastian Loeb in a Toyota or something. It, it, just, it, just, it just looks and feels strange. Um, but those things happened back then. But uh, I, I guess in terms of the car that you rooted for... It, it was kind of like Nirvana or Pearl Jam, so you could only pick one or the other. Were you a Lancia Delta Integrale or to- Toyota Celica GT4 person? I was neither because I came just after that generation. <laughs> oh, okay. But, but I mean, thinking back on the classic cars, which one do you prefer? That's a really difficult one. It depends on the day of the week <laughs> because <laughs> I'm, I'm most turned towards Japanese manufacturers, so I would have picked Toyota. But again... The Lancia Delta is such a cool car that I'd probably pick that one as well. So yeah, it will really depends on which day of the week you'd ask me. But like I said, I came into the sport just the generation after that, the the, the famous Subaru versus Mitsubishi, mm. uh, Colin McRae versus Tommy McKinnon. That's my era. And like I said, my dream car is the Evo, so I pick Mitsubishi always. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, and uh, that that era of uh, of of Lancer versus Impreza, I, I can't believe quite how much Subaru and Mitsubishi both both messed up the legacy of those cars. Um, um, no no pun intended, but um, for for a while, for about ten years, it felt like that era would never end, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Their their cars were kept coming out and. You see them on a road and you see them on a rally stage and it was just magical to me you know as a young kid growing up and sawing all that was just captivating yeah um and i just i just want to give honorable mention before we move on to richard burns rally which is jimmy jimmy broadbent's favorite rally game even though it's from 2005 so it is now unbelievably 18 year 18 years 18 years old um but what what a game and um um jimmer who i trust on most things sim racing reckons that it's still the rally game that for him captures the best driving the the best driving mechanics the the best kind of uh, um um driving physics um have you played the game and if so how do you feel about it and um, um also how do you feel about um a, a again like like enthusia a one off game um, that obviously Burnsy sadly died shortly after that. Um, you know, a one-off game turning out to have such a long tail to it because it's still being modded even now. Yeah, I think the legacy of that game is, is tremendous because again, it was the first rally game trying to be a sim, trying to be a simulator, uh, and it holds up still today. Uh, unlike the other sims of that time that were exclusive to PC. This one was actually made its way to consoles. Uh, so you can actually even play on a PS2 if, if you want to. Uh, but the experience is pretty much similar. It's the same. It's just you don't have access to mods or whatnot, of course. Uh, but the fact that they made the game accessible and still aiming to be the top is what I think the legacy game of it. It was just a diverse, a unique experience back then where you really had 
all the nitty-gritties of rallying and driving a rally car. And yeah, I think that's where the likes comes from. They're just a, a great game that outstands time. Yeah, and uh, it, it, again, it's it's just incredible that a, a game created in I I think it I think it must have been two thousand and four two thousand and five um, to, turns out to uh, still be still be the gold standard, but. Uh, also, also makes also makes me quite sad that Burnsy isn't around to see the current crop of rally car. I think he would have loved to have uh, jumped in for a guest drive on uh, one or two one or two rallies, uh, sort of uh, go, going into the WRC and uh, uh, Rally One era. I, I mean, he'd be in his late fifties by now, but I think he I think he's, he'd still be a handy exhibition driver, wouldn't he? Oh, absolutely. His uh, his race craft was just tremendous, so calculated, and. I think in a way he changed the standards of the sport before Sebastian Loeb really caught his, his got a chance to stretch his legs, you know, be much more calculated with things, and learning when to attack and when to defend his times. Uh, it was just there was no no fault. I couldn't put a fault to him, to him both as a person and as a professional. Uh, I was more gravitated towards Colin because of the showmanship. And I was a kid back then, so of course, car going sideways is more exciting than a car going slower on a corner. But in retrospect, looking back, I think, yeah, well, the sport misses Richard Burns dearly because he, he was such a personality around him. And like I said, I couldn't really fault him. Well, um, I, th- I think the sport misses them both. And uh, the, 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 fact, the fact that uh, um, they, they both lost their lives doing things that... Uh should have been routine it uh, kind of um you know it uh, it it uh, kind of kind of makes it all the worse in some ways uh, but uh, yeah um so Colin McRae rally 2005 was your third choice um and an That's excellent right. choice if i may say so um so on to test drive unlimited now the test drive series has been going for longer than even Colin McRae um test drive 1 came out in i think 1991 or 92 um uh, th- this was when I was um, just getting into. Uh, I I I I had um a, I had a, a Atari five twenty ST at the time uh, that my dad bought for me after I kept egging him on to get me a computer. Um, he made me put it on the de- on, on the table in the dining room because he didn't want me putting a computer in my bedroom, which uh, you know shows how things have changed these days. But. Uh, um yeah and uh test drive came out shortly afterwards um i don't think i ever played the full game i did play the playable demo and um at the time it felt about as realistic as uh, as driving games could get uh you know you'd think oh wow i'm behind the wheel of a ferrari testarossa now this this feels realistic of course looking back it's like the original gta it really isn't but uh at, at the time lot of fun but yeah, test drive has pretty much uh, predated everything, but also kept up with the times, hasn't it? So, what is it about test drive unlimited that catches your eye? Well, first I got to correct you on something. It's did not keep up with the times at all. In fact, prior to this game, to test drive unlimited, the, the games were not all that well regarded. Actually, um, there's an article from Adam Ismail from Jalopnik. If you look up uh, where he it looks back at how weird cars used to look in old games, and I'm sure half of those examples comes from the old test drive games, because those cars <laughs> did look nothing like what they were supposed to look like. They were 
awful, awful games, honestly. <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah, Test Drive Unlimited changed everything, not just for the series, but for the genre itself. Um, I believe this to be the very first proper open world racing game, and it just it set the standard for what a racing game could be in this subgenre. In fact, Forza Horizon has a lot to thank for for this game. Uh, all the inspiration comes, I think, will come from it. Test uh, Driver Limit was aiming to be an MMO, so a massive multiplayer online mm. game. So it was always online if if you wanted to be or can or race by yourself. But the idea was that you're always connected to your friends on this massive environment. And I'm only massive with an actual massive. This is an actual Allen model after one of the islands from Hawaii. So it it was an actual place you could go to. It was enormous, miles and miles of roads and hmm. so much different things to see. And there was a proper ownership to, to, to your cars the game gave you because you would drive to a dealership you pick the car you want it, then you, you can spec it how you want it. So you pick the color, you pick the trims of the seats, you pick which wheels you want. And all these things are accurate to the dealership and to the car of that time as well. And once you pick all these things and you inspect the car and you watch the window slide down or you take the, if it's a convertible, convertible, you see the top come down, you pick it and you can choose to go for a test drive. And you go, go around, yeah, I like the car, I'm going to buy it. So now you own this car. So now you have the choice of either go for a race that this car is permitted to enter or drive it to your garage and admire it next to the rest of the co collection. And that was another mechanic of this game. You could actually buy houses across the map and garages to store your cars. So you, you there was a, a physical presence to your collection to, to, to admire. Uh, this game was primarily and mostly focused on appreciating cars. It is is, is a haven for, for car people and, and it's so dedicated to the experience first and foremost that you could easily just lose hours. Uh, nowadays, you think of any open world game, even if it's not a racing game, and they give you options to fast travel anywhere from here to there. And a lot of games fall into that very quickly. Uh, you, you, you're starting off the game you, a couple hours in and you suddenly unlock fast travel. Uh, but with this one, it made you work for it and you, you had to actually drive from one point to another and i would take minutes several minutes you know we're talking into dozens 20 minutes if you had to be but you didn't mind the journey there because it was just like driving in hawaii real life you know it was it was the experience that the environment they built was just so unique that it gave birth to forza horizon essentially so i think this is a must play game on on any capacity because it's just so important and pivotal to the genre itself. Yeah, and um, it uh, came out, I think, in the previous generation of consoles, so the, the Xbox 360 era, if I'm right. Uh, it came out, I think, on a 360. It came out on a PS2 as well. It got mm. a PSP port as well. That was oh. amazing how they managed to, to cram the entire map into such a small system. Uh, but the place where the game thrived the most was on PC, because, again, you, you could go online and just interact with your friends, join clubs mm -hmm. to, to show, showcase the ownership of your cars. And yeah, it was just, just, just a massive game changer for the whole genre. And uh, I actually, g g given the limited processing potential of the time, um, that they, they did a really uh, clever thing by picking an island because 
um, I, I mean, I, I, I adore Forza Horizon Two uh, because uh, um, be, because most of my gaming was done on a three sixty, and um, uh, Forza Horizon Two, I think, actually came came with the machine, but it's the game I spent most of my time playing. Um, but the the one thing I find slightly unrealistic, well, um, particularly unrealistic, is that uh, you can race all over the French Riviera, but you can't go beyond that. And, uh, so, and and you solve that problem by putting it on an island because, of course, you've got a natural limit to what you have to develop, haven't you? That's right. And that's why the Grand Theft Auto games are set on islands because it just, everything confining in one space. Uh, there's always that, that choice when, make, when we're designing a game, you know, oh, yeah, we can make the map like this, but then where the road goes? Uh, then the players get curious. How do I go ab- above that, you know, past that point? And you can't, obviously, because that's the limitation of the map size. But yeah, by like you said, putting on analysis solves that problem. But by no extent think that this is a tiny island. This map is gigantic. Well, still by today's standard, it takes you a good hour or so to go a full around it if you wanted to. It's very, very well detailed for the time, but still it's an experience that you really have to experience for yourself because... Back then, it was just absolutely nothing like it. Yeah. So, Test Drive Unlimited is your is your fourth choice. Um, now, for the last one, we're going into the storied kingdom of Namco, um, mm. make makers of uh, great games across the board. Really, I, I mean, for pretty much from Pac Man onwards. But, uh, um, but they're they're particularly well loved for the Ridge Racer series by 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 a certain sort of group of gamer, maybe the maybe the early PlayStation era gamers, because Ridge Racer was one of those. Uh, was was one of those games that was easy to get into at, at at that time, maybe with the PS1 and PS2. Um, so what about Ridge Racer Type Four? What is it about the uh, the fourth iteration of the series that does it for you? It's probably the one that stands out the most in terms of presentation and atmosphere and what it was trying to achieve. Um, Ridge Racer is synonymous by being a launch title for PlayStation, as it did for the first one and Ridge Racer 5 for the PS2, and they're all technical marvels in their own right. Uh, Ridge Racer Type 4, I think, was their last game on the original PlayStation, so it was the culmination of all the experience that they've learned and what they can do with the system and how to maximize the experience for the player. But the one thing that resonates with everybody who have played this game is the presentation. It's... it's Nothing like it at the time is very Y2K aesthetics, uh, has an acid jazz music to it. Mm. And the way the game presents itself to the player is so unique and you, you can't help but feel yourself engrossed on it. And this is even before you start a race, even before you press a button, you already so engrossed in this experience, in this environment that you, you just lose yourself to it. And the game also tried to introduce sort of a story mode to the to the genre, uh, where you start a game, you pick one of four teams, but uh, as we know, it's the player actually picking your difficult difficulty level. Each team represents a difficulty level. Uh, the easiest difficulty level, you get the best team, so you get the fastest car. You you expect to win, and it's the hardest difficulty, you actually get the, the smallest team, which they're struggling financially, and they they don't have much money, so their cars are slower. 
and that's what makes it harder. Uh, but the the thing of the story is you you put through this made up championship called Real Racing Roots '99. Uh, which takes you through an array of tracks and ultimately winning the championship to it. But the way it sets out is, depending on which team you pick, there's, there's a different story. You, you see the character uh, being the, the team principal, talking to you, the player. Uh, and like I said, depending on which one you, you choose, there's a different story. So if you pick the the highest team, which is... Uh, RTS Sovalu, I believe. Uh, I'm getting these names wrong now. <laughs> but yeah, if you pick the the top team, the the boss will tell you, hey, I expect you to win. There's no excuses. Just get out there and drive. But if you pick one of the, the smallest teams, you you see the team manager open up to you and say, oh, this might be our, our, our last time on this championship. We might not be able to make it. Uh, so let's just go out there and do our best. And depending on the results that you get throughout the, the story mode, you you get better cars. So it means your team is performing well, so you get a better car. If you don't perform as well, you, you get a, a different car. But if you really are not performing, then you, you stick with the same car and you have to drag it into the next round. Um, some people think this is an oversight uh, in terms of completion sake because you have to do all these things to, to unlock certain cars, but actually it's not. It's a very clever way that Namco made to to keep you going, to, to give you a motivation to keep playing the game. Uh, because, oh, you didn't do so well, that's no, no worries. Here's a, a compensation for it to keep you going, to keep you pushing to the, to the end of the story. And right at the end, and this is typical Namco fashion, right at the end, the, the last final race is held on the New Year's Eve. So you actually get to see the in-world transition from 1999 to the year 2000 and it's really really cool wow that 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 does sound amazing actually and uh, you, you mentioned that the music choice was acid jazz um it, it takes me back actually i, I remember how bands like jamiroquai were, were quite big at that time but uh, um what do you think it is about the music choice for a game that makes it so important? And which game has got the music choice the best? Um, the, the, which which game has done the best thing with the music choice, or may, maybe the most original thing with the music choice? Do you think? To me, it has always to be Namco. The, the Namco sound team has made some absolutely incredible tracks. Whatever they produce always matches one to one to the game they worked on, and. Each Reed Racer is different, but also the same in that has this high tempo music that you know is is designed to pump you up and keep progressing forward. But Type Four Reed Racer Type Four is different. It's more laid back. It's more smooth. It's more about presenting the atmosphere to you. And all the games that I've played from Namco, the soundtrack has been stellar. It has been some of my favorites even um when i was making out this list i put a limitation to myself actually i told mm -hmm. myself i wouldn't i wouldn't pick licensed games so i wouldn't pick an f1 i wouldn't pick a wrc and same reason why i didn't pick the moto gp games because mm -hmm. there was there was a spell in the early 2000s where namco was doing the moto gp games and by the time they got to moto gp3 again their their presentation the 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 way they use sound and soundtracks and visuals to to enhance the experience is one of my favorites ever. 
And that's why I love R4 as well, is because the presentation is just so unique, is so encapsulating of this era that it makes it a must-play. It's essential for anyone who likes racing games to play a Ridge Racer Type 4. Okay. And um, is is there an easy way for um, us to find these games if, uh, for example, we don't own the old console, or um, if if we if we don't own the if 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 we're not able to go on go on Amazon or go on eBay and uh, e- easily um, sort of order a secondhand copy of the games? Um, um, is, is there a place where where they are emulated and where we can maybe download them to our PC, for example? So there's a number of ways of getting access to these games. Um, my personal favorite way is still original hardware. Uh, that's how I, I play these games even today. Uh, but that's just my personal preference. Um, I don't get on well with the emulators for some reason. Uh, that's been the, a running gag among, among, my, among my friends that no matter which emulator I try, no matter what I do, they never work for me. They always break in some unknown <laughs> way. But but there is there is ways out there and it's accessible uh, and in fact irking back to what we jokingly said at the beginning of, the, of this episode uh, with time extend they actually have a, a dedicated episode with with john lemon from digital foundry uh, where they walk you through different ways to emulate all these different systems from the original xbox to ps2 or whatever and they don't just say oh do one two three they actually tell you if your options are this, then do that. You know, they go into much more detail and tell you how to experience these games properly. Uh, but from the ones I listed, uh, all with the exception of Ridge Racer Type 4, are available via emulation or original hardware. Uh, Ridge Racer Type 4 was luckily launched digitally on a PlayStation Store, but you would need to access it via a PlayStation 3, actually, a PS3 to get to it, because unfortunately it doesn't work on a PS4 or a PS5. Oh. But it, it's out there. It's available legally, and you can buy it on a PS Store. Uh, it's also available on the PlayStation Mini that came out a few years back. Mm. Uh, it's also available to play on your PSP or PS Vita, because, again, you can just buy it directly from the store. Can you explain why uh, hardware companies do this? Because Microsoft has done some uh, pretty janky things with uh, backward compatibility as well. Why is it that uh, PlayStation would make a system that wasn't able to run the old games? There is a million and one reasons for it, to be honest. Uh, I think the obvious reason is most common out there is just they just don't care. They just don't want to because things keep moving forward and I sort of agree to that extent but I've been collecting games for so long now and I I just want to have them all in one place you know it'd be nice um, Xbox did a really nice thing with their backwards compatibility they tried to make as many games as possible accessible on current generation hardware where all you had to do was just put the disc in and, and it works you know downloads a digital copy uh, it doesn't work with every game of course because they still have their own limitations but I think personally that's one thing Xbox did very well that Sony didn't with PlayStation. Um, I think backwards compatibility is so important because it's it's a piece of, of history, you know. Once this this hardware goes, once it's hard to secure these these consoles or they can no longer maintain them, some of these games are lost forever, you know. And game preservation is really important because you have to 
I'm suggesting you to play these games, but how are you going to play them? You know, and that's the that's the caveat that that's the roadblock for for all these companies keep pushing moving forward and that they, they forget the, their past, their legacy. And yeah, why they do it? I'm not entirely sure myself. There's like a million and one reasons, but I'm sure that with enough pressure, with with enough push, and with, with enough enough wanting, uh, I'm sure they can find a way. Yeah, and game preservation comes into the next topic uh, because uh, you also wanted to mention Drive Club, and um, I yes. want I want to also mention a title which uh, has, um, like Drive Club, been delisted. In other words, it mm. is not able to be purchased through official channels. Um, f- first of all, why do games in general get delisted, and then uh, why would Drive Club be one of your picks if it were indeed available? So to answer the first question. Um, by listing games it's unfortunately an oversight that harks back all the way to when games first started going digital you know back on the 360 PS3 era where you could make a game and publish it digitally and make it much more cheaper that way um, but the games that suffered the most with this are licensed games so games with racing cars on it in order to produce a game with your Ferrari, with your Lamborghini, with your Porsche, you got to go to those brands and acquire a license that permits the developer to use their cars in the game and to sell their, their game with their product in it. You know, that, that's what the, the license is about. But these licenses vary from brand to brands and from developers to developers. And these licenses give you a... a allow you to, again, to sell your product with a product in the game for a specific amount of time. Some games is five years, some games is ten, some games is forever, as long as you keep renewing it. But in the example of of Drive Club, it, it had a lot of licensed cars in there, obviously. But once that license ran out, then the publisher was, was faced with two options. And the publisher being Sony at this time, I think. Uh, you can either renew the license for every single car in the game. We're not, we're not talking just one or two. We're talking every single one of them. Renew all those licenses or just do what the, the license agreement says, which is you can no longer, you're no longer allowed to gain profit via this license. So you better renew it or you take it off the shelves. Because if, you, if you're still selling the game, you're still making a profit. And that's illegal because you're making a profit outside of license. And that's where the complications come with, with a lot of these games. And mo- like I said, mostly racing games because they have brands all over the place. And once these licensing agreements run out, then they have to look at it themselves and think, are we really going to renew a license for this five or 10 year old game when we could just make another one maybe? Uh, a lot of times, sadly, they don't make another one. But yeah, this is the reason why games mostly the times with license involvement get delisted because they just the license runs out hmm. and um about drive club in particular so why does that hold a place in your heart well this would have been one of my must plays but like i said sadly it got delisted uh drive club is the brainchild of evolution studios who made the delbarcy games prior to this and it was set out to be a really massive experience on PlayStation uh, because back then choices were a bit limited. Yeah, yes, you had a Gran Turismo, but Gran Turismo is a simulator. I want something more laid back, more action, 
driver driven and that's what drive clubs out to be you know you drive all of these fantastic uh, state-of-the-art cars and the ultimate thing on across breathtaking scenery and that's something they did they really took advantage of the, the powerhouse of the ps4 and made the visuals look absolutely incredible uh granted they, they were a bit picky on, on screenshots and whatnot but that's what you do on marketing you, you show the showcase the best thing of the game uh it it's just a very specific experience where Evolution Studios tries something different. This is their first take on a game that's not WRC. So, it again, going back to soundtrack, because that's part of the game, uh, even though it has the same song repeated 50 times in the remixes, but hmm. it's it's about the experience of, of driving, and I think they nail it really, really nicely. They even introduced in a later patch a... Uh, a professional mode which makes the cars a bit trickier to handle and much more grounded to reality and i think ultimately that's what made drive club great uh because when it first released it wasn't in, in a good state it wasn't well received it had a lot of difficulties but after that it received uh, an, an array of updates an array of content and it just made the game twice as better and it's really really sad to see it not being available right now because I generally believe that anyone should experience this game it is such it's such an experience to to drive those cars and the way it makes you feel when you drive them and with all the different beautiful spectacles surrounding you uh, you drive through nighttime through rain through snow you go you drive in Norway and next time you're driving in India and there's this, this beautiful sceneries that can just go forever and that's where my favorite part of the game came from, the, the own photo mode tools to take pictures. And if you look up online, this drive club photos, you see some the most breathtaking shots people have taken. And this is all in-game, you know, there's no post-editing. This is all the game's doing it for you. And it's just, it's it's beautiful. It's I think it's a game that tries to achieve visually what Gran Turismo did, but make it more accessible and more about driving experience i'm i'm actually looking at some of the images now uh from from drive club and um yeah it's it's just incredible actually i'm looking at the uh quality of the graphics as well um on on that on that koenigsegg um this is uh i i think i think maybe this this uh this this hits in a special way for um many gamers because you know, a, a lot of those cars are from the heyday of the new Top Gear, so uh, yeah. they're, they're they're cars that probably people saw the first time when Jeremy Clarkson drove them. Many many people, I think. Yeah, the the, the car selection on that game is very well put together. I'd say uh, these are all the latest cars of the time, and some of them you won't even find in other games. Uh, but that's another thing about this game is is a good time capsule for the era, so you get to see the cool cars at that time and um yeah actually the the way that they've the way that they seem to have mapped the urban centers as well they, they, they seem to have done a fairly realistic job of mapping some 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 major cities there oh yeah absolutely the the, the environment design they had there was incredible uh it was originally the game only had like sort of b roads and a couple of racetracks but then a later update introduced more urban cities 
and yet the game environment is just absolutely breathtaking. Hmm. Um, another game that was delisted, although probably I think for different reasons. Um, I was watching a video on the uh, um, delisting and uh, subsequent uh, um, detective job that this uh, YouTuber did to try and find Driver San Francisco. And I, the, the more I learned about this game, the more I was fascinated by the uh, by, by by the story mode and by just just the way the way that it worked. Um, so essentially correct me if i'm wrong here it it took the principle of a racing game where you took on different cars except that uh all the way through you were one person who was in a coma and uh who had this kind of um um ethereal way of jumping into people's bodies um and uh so so could advance the plot by driving as various people but as you jumped into the car or the van or whatever it might be, um, um, as as somebody quantum leap style, uh, the person in the car next to you would say, "Hey, you're acting a bit strangely. What's going on?" So th- there was that real immersion, and uh, it it really made you feel um, what what uh, uh, what that uh, fantasy character might have been feeling, and um, it it just seems like such a great concept for a game and. I, I just wonder if maybe one of the reasons why um, Ubisoft decided to delist it was because of that uh, slightly quirky plot. Uh, may, maybe maybe the idea of taking on the persona of someone in a coma didn't particularly suit their brand values. I don't know. W- what are your thoughts on that? No, it's nothing to do with that. If if they thought that plot story had something wrong with their values, they wouldn't make the game to begin with. They wouldn't greenlit the story. Uh the reason why that game got delisted is the same reason as the other games is licensing, really. Uh, Driving San Francisco features real cars, real brands, and those license agreements eventually ran out and they chose not to renew them and they had to pull from the source. That I know it sounds probably cliche and me repeating the same thing, but it is. This is the number one reason why racing games get delisted. It's just the licensing expires. But in, in that case... Surely, the, I mean, obviously we're Monday morning quarterbacking here, but surely the best thing they could have done was just to have made unlicensed cars. Because I would have thought in a game like that, it doesn't really matter if you have licensed cars or not, because the realism comes from the story. Um, am I am I wrong? I mean, could they have got away with GTA-style unlicensed, you know, Peronis instead of Ferraris, that kind of thing? And, and you could, because ultimately... The Driver series is paying homage to the old 70s and 80s action films, driving styles. Uh, that's what. That's why there's a story mode in there, and all you know, the Driver games all have some sort of story because they pay homage to those films back then. And so, prior to Driver San Francisco, they never had licensed cars, so it didn't really matter. But there's there's a certain appeal to a game to have this all these licensed in cars in it and all these collaborations to the real world. It, it just, for some people, they prefer licensed cars. Others don't really care. Uh, but when you have a game and you can say, hey, drive the brand new Chevrolet Camaro in our game, that's much more appealing, right? There's a marketing angle to it. And it just makes the immersion that much better. Uh, so when the choice is made to use licensed cars, then you have to go down the list. Okay, which ones do we want? Let's make a list of 50 cars. 
And of those 50, oh, we can only afford 20. And of those 20, probably chop it down to 10 because of other reasons. Uh, so yeah, this is pretty much how it starts when making lists for games. But I think ultimately it comes to personal preference. Depends on what the game developers want to do. Depends on what they're trying to achieve here. I think in this particular example, I think they just wanted to make the game uh, much more immersive that way by having realistic cars in it. Well, that makes sense. Um, this has been so much fun. Uh, thank you, Fernando. I'd love to uh, have you on to talk about more games in the future as well. Um, but uh, th thank you so much for joining the Motion E podcast uh, in this particular edition, uh, Fernando Moutinho. And um, also um, all, all the best to uh, you and yours at Codemasters as well. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to be here. Always fun. I always love talking about this for hours and hours. Uh, yeah. Still working hard at Codemasters. Uh, it's been my dream, dream job forever, so I'm really enjoying it. Okay. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, then you can donate to uh, Motion E on Coffee if you want. Uh, and you can find that and all the other links on um, linktree.com forward slash motion underscore E, where you'll find the link to the website, the link to uh, the podcast on all kinds of platforms, and also uh, Discord and Twitter and Mastodon, and yes, the Coffee link as well. Uh, but yes, thank you for listening to the Motion E podcast and we'll have something else next time. <laughs> <laughs>